0: Well, a bipartisan group of House lawmakers have publicly endorsed President Biden's $579 billion infrastructure deal with a group of Republican and Democratic senators, giving the compromise fresh momentum at the start of a crucial month for the administration's agenda. A lot is on the line here, Tim.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. Well, let's get right to it with Rodney Slater, partner at Squire Patton Boggs, also former Transportation Secretary. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Secretary Slater, thanks so much for for joining us today. Does this infrastructure bill billion. Does it go far enough?
2: Well, clearly, uh, President Biden had a much larger bill. And I think ultimately, even this measure will be beyond um, that amount, because uh, I think when you consider uh, current spending levels with new spending levels, it's going to be in excess of uh, $1 trillion. Uh, But um, uh, we've got significant transportation needs. I think this is a very, very important step. And I think just as is the case with all uh, transportation measures, you have to have bills that are continuously reauthorized. Uh, and it's just uh, unfortunate that um, uh, in the last you know decade or so, uh, we just have not uh, been as um, uh, forthright uh, in spending the kinds of uh, dollars we have to spend to ensure that our system remains in good shape and that we're also investing in things of the future, like um, uh, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, uh, high-speed trains, maglev uh, trains, uh, those sorts of things. So I'm excited about the bill. Uh, Traditional infrastructure primarily, though, with some significant investment in broadband. Uh, And uh, I think it's a very important uh, first step.
0: Well, Secretary Slater, and that's something I wanted to get into about, you know, There's different types of infrastructure out there. You were Transportation Secretary under President Bill Clinton. Before that, you were Administrator of the Federal Highway Administration. I mean, you have (laughs) seen our infrastructure for many years, the comings and goings are we thinking about infrastructure in a bit of an outmoded way, an old model? Should we be thinking about ways to actually cut back on the use of of roads and highways rather than just building it back? And I'm thinking about things like efficient congestion pricing for cars and trucks, Mm -hmm. or efficient Mm -hmm. pavement and bridge wear pricing for trucks, because trucks, really kill our roads and highways you know should we have them be paying more that that will hopefully ultimately bring about uh better design if you will when it comes to trucks
2: well uh, you know first of all let me just i want to step in in support of say trucks and trains because that's really what keeps our uh economy moving uh, we are the most mobile society in the world and we move significant amounts of uh freight and um all the kinds of products that we take for granted when we go to a grocery store, when we go to a department store, that sort of thing. And many of those goods are moved by trucks, many move by trains. And even during the pandemic, uh, these workers were on the front lines, again, keeping our economy going. But you're right. Transportation, I've always said, is about more than concrete, asphalt and steel. We have to look at new means of investing in transportation. We have to Uh, frankly, wean ourselves from a dependence on uh, fossil fuels and look at uh, new, renewed uh, energy sources. Uh, I think um, the president has challenged us uh, in that regard, even with his campaign theme of building back better, not just building back, but building back better and shoring up our infrastructure so as to withstand some of the natural disasters that we're facing, especially on the coast. So we've got a lot of work to do. I think we've got the professionals to get that work done. Right. Uh, the American people want it done. And uh, it's key to our pursuit of happiness. So I think that there is much about the new that has to be done, but also we have to maintain the system that we have currently.
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring up the coast, too. And I do wonder about that with climate change. We talk about Florida a mm-hmm. lot here on Bloomberg. It's yeah. caught the attention of investors. You know, should we continue to build back and shore up if we're not going to really equally do something about climate change? Because it's just a case of rebuilding the castle only to see the shoreline take it down again.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, the the president has been very clear about that. Uh, and I think he's really hit on three words that I believe will ultimately define uh, the effort that he's proposed and the effort that uh, the Congress will actually pass. Uh, he's talked about resilience. He's talked about sustainability and equity. And all of those uh, issues go to system of the future, being more resilient, where it's shored up, where it's um, building back better, being sustainable, meaning a a system that can withstand the challenges of freight, withstand the challenges of natural disasters, those sorts of things, and then more equitable, ensuring that everyone is included, that no one is left behind. And so I'm excited about uh, what we can anticipate. I think that we've seen the system really... um, Tested in this Fourth of July holiday weekend, where we've enjoyed um, the opportunity as Americans to see America come back, if you will, and and sort of get back to a period of uh, of normalcy, especially uh, hopefully as we've sort of put COVID in our rearview mirror. But again, that has been the number one objective of the president: freeing us from that, and then dealing with our economic pandemic, our economic challenges. Uh, and then investing in the future. And I I just feel good about where we are, but we've got much more to do as the Congress returns from the holiday and sort of nears the August recess and then, frankly, the end of the fiscal year, uh, the end of September. So uh, a lot to do, but I think we're uh, on the right track
1: to be sure. I want to talk about this in the context of of China. In the context of economic growth here in the United States. Yesterday's big take, the big story that Bloomberg publishes each day, focused on China overtaking potentially the United States as the world's largest economy by 2031. In order for that to happen, a lot has to go right in China, but a lot has to go wrong here in the U.S. Joe Biden has to be unable to push through proposals for renewing infrastructure and expanding the workforce. That's according to forecasts from Bloomberg Economics. You've been in Washington a long time. China, in many cases, when it comes to infrastructure, is just eating our lunch. How do you get Republicans and Democrats to see eye to eye when it comes to making real progress on infrastructure?
2: Well, first of all, I I think here again, we've seen some good signs. I mean, clearly, uh, this effort is not only an effort that's being pushed by the president, but you've got a bipartisan group of senators uh, who've responded uh, quite um, admirably as well, and then more recently, uh, the House Problem Solvers Caucus uh, has stepped forward. That's roughly six members of uh, uh, sixty members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats. So I think that's uh, that's a good sign. I can tell you, in years past, uh, those of us who've had the honor of serving as Secretary of Transportation, we've enjoyed significant bipartisan support. I was uh, just with Sam Skinner, uh, a secretary during the Bush administration, Bush, one, Bush 41, I'll say it that way, uh, and um, gave us a wonderful piece of legislation that was bipartisan. We came in shortly after that, took advantage of that gift. Uh, during reauthorization, added additional resources. And really, it's that piece of legislation that's governed transportation policy for about 30 years. We now have a need to build on that and to go beyond that. And that's why this current opportunity is so critical. I think it's also significant that you mentioned uh, China. I can tell you that uh, President Biden has been clear in all of his uh, interactions with uh, President Xi Jinping. He said, look, we want you to know that we're back. We're going to meet you at the center of the arena of competition. We intend to win. Uh, The president has said that uh, those who see the Uh, West declining and the East uh, in the ascendance, uh, we want to tell you that the West is back. And that's what his whole trip to Europe was all about, strengthening our allies, bringing them uh, along as well. And then uh, his entertainment of uh, the Japanese uh, president earlier in the year. I mean, he's been on the case from day one in promoting not only U.S. interests, but the interests of democracies around the, the world. And infrastructure is important for those democracies to remain vital, because it's about the movement of people and ideas and the strengthening of our relations with others. Uh, And so I think the president is clear about this. I think Vice President Harris is also uh, clear about this. And when it comes to the challenge at hand, I'll just close with this, that President Clinton once said, look, there is nothing so bad about America that it can't be cured by what's good about America. So I'm confident about the future for the country as well.
0: Secretary Slater only got about 50 seconds left here. I think it's very clear about what President Biden wants to do and VP Harris wants to do uh, and the administration wants to do. But Democrats and Republicans can kind of forget that, you know, it's not about them competing against one another, but it's about the United States competing against the world and most notably China as it moves ahead in terms of building its infrastructure. Can they be aligned to actually move forward on infrastructure? In a, in a good and aggressive way, and forgive me, but only got about 30, 35 seconds.
2: No, thanks, Carol. I believe they can. And uh, again, I appreciate both you and Tim in setting up this last discussion, this last segment around that question. It's not about us trying to just fight among ourselves, but it's about us coming forward shoulder to shoulder, pushing ahead, so as to ensure that America's best days are ahead. And so, I think with the challenge that the president has put forth, uh, the Congress has to respond, and I believe they will.
0: Well, so great to get some time with you. I hope we can draw on you in the future to really pick your brain about uh, all of this, especially as it moves forward. Rodney Slater, thank you so much, partner Squire Patton Boggs, of course, former Transportation Secretary under President Bill Clinton, joining us on the phone from the nation's capital. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So, at least a dozen startups are trying to disrupt the $465 billion prescription and pharmacy industry. It's a story reported for Bloomberg Business Week. And so, let's get to it. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, he is on the access line in Brooklyn, along with Bloomberg News reporter Angelica Levito on the phone in Massachusetts. Uh, Joel, it's big money.
3: Big money, and I have to admit that uh, a lot of these online pharmacies, uh, these names were new to me. I mm, just straight up too. did not know that there had m- been this many entrants into a space that, I don't know, it felt like <laughs> maybe there was an opportunity, but clearly there was a bigger opportunity than than what little old me thought. Um, so, uh, Angelica, let's bring you in. What, what has been the strategy here? Because obviously... People have been able to get, you know, uh, prescriptions mailed to them at their home addresses for for years now. So what's the opportunity for what all these online pharmacies are now seeing?
4: All of these pharmacies are looking at that $465 billion, and they see an opportunity that they could take even a percent, a little bit of that piece of the pie, and that could be a lot of money for them. And so we're seeing a lot of companies in this space, at least a dozen. And the names in this story that we focused on are Medley, Alto, and Capsule, because these are three that we felt were good representations of um, companies that are going after that pharmacy that you think of, maybe a CVS or a Walgreens, and they want to be the place where you go to fill your prescription. And of course, the place where you go is your phone. And so what you do is you order on your phone. And they ship it to you or they have someone literally deliver it to you like you would get food from Uber Eats or Grubhub or wherever you order your
3: food.
1: But Angelica, this this is also something that neighborhood pharmacies have been offering for years. I mean, you can you can call in my Brooklyn neighborhood at the local CVS. The doctor sends your prescription in and I can get it delivered to my apartment. So so what's different about these venture backed startups?
4: Exactly. And that's the issue that they're going to have to try to overcome is that there are Plenty of ways to get a prescription delivered to you. And so some of them are trying to focus on specific drugs. So, for example, Alto and Medley are both really focused on specialty drugs. And these are typically expensive medicines that you take for chronic illnesses, maybe rheumatoid arthritis or something that you have to inject um, or keep refrigerated. So, really um, delicate drugs that require you to spend a lot of time thinking about and maybe with questions and so therefore you can go on your app and chat with a person in real time or maybe you need help paying for that drug because it's really expensive and so the pitch there is that you can talk to someone and they can help you again via the app.
0: Angelica, one of the things I love about your story is Amazon and I think okay so what's their role in all of this and maybe disrupting this industry that's been so entrenched in a certain way of doing it. But I also then think Alto, Capsule, Medley, you better watch out because maybe Amazon's just going to gobble you up in its pursuit to be into healthcare in a big way. What's the role of Amazon in all of this?
4: So Amazon, a few years ago, three years ago now, they bought a company called PillPack that was once one of these, what we would call a digital pharmacy startups, And now, three years later, you're starting to really see them innovate. They've expanded, and now they have what they call Amazon Pharmacy. And the idea is that it should be as easy to get a prescription drug as it is to buy a pair of socks or something else on Amazon. And so one of the newest things they've rolled out this year is $6 for a $6 six-month prescription, excuse me, of drugs. And it's some generic drugs. It doesn't cover every single prescription under the sun. But this is, of course... um, really interesting, and it will pressure everyone to think about the cost, because what is one of the biggest pain points for consumers is how much prescription drugs cost, and so that is something that um, a number of the people we spoke to for this story say, again, you better watch out if you are a startup trying to compete against a company like
3: Amazon. So there's so much money sloshing around here, and obviously the the uh, digital pharmacies are trying to get a cut of it but like what what are some of the the the, the vc money what, who are the players that that are sort of helping fuel fuel this interest
4: we're seeing a lot of technology investors actually getting interested in this space or even consumer investors so larry chang he's a managing partner at volition capital and they were early investors in chewy which of course is the startup that to disrupt the pet industry and they were pretty successful in that pursuit and in talking to larry he told me that one of the things that is so fascinating to them and so intriguing about the pharmacy market is just how enormous it is and that it really represents in his view the last segment of retail that has not been disrupted by technology in some way and so that's why you're starting to see a lot of these, um, maybe not traditional healthcare investors, but technology consumer investors getting really intrigued by this space.
1: What about when it comes to data? Because I was intrigued by a part of your story that said that Medley is exploring the sale of anonymous consumer data to drug manufacturers, which would show whether medications are helping patients, how regularly people take them, side effects and insurance related information. Is Is that something that could kind of be a red flag to consumers, even though it's anonymized? Or is this the type of thing where, okay, we're so used to just being sort of anonymous data packets for other firms?
4: Well, data, of course, is a bigger piece of healthcare, and that's really a lot of the opportunity for some of these companies because they feel like they know what's going on. They see if you're actually filling your prescription on time. Um, They know if you're reaching out to them, asking for help, getting that drug covered. And theoretically, if they start asking you how you're feeling, are you experiencing any side effects, they can then bring that to the drug manufacturers who are all looking for real world evidence to improve their own strategies. So that is a big opportunity, according to Medley. And the one, and I did ask that question about, well, are you worried? Are you going to ask consumers? And they say that they would ask for consent and it would be anonymized in aggregate data. So it wouldn't be, you know, you are getting information on this one patient and exactly how they performed. It would be here are all of the patients on this drug who consented to, um, to the data collection. And here's how they're doing and what, why that matters for you.
0: We do need some innovation though with this space, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, it's great to read about this and hear about some of those companies as Joel mentioned. I wasn't familiar with them either. Alto, Capsule, and Medley. Uh, Angelica, thank you. Angelica Levito, she's healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Massachusetts. Joel Weber, of course, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the Access Line in Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So the Bloomberg Big Take, that was among our most read on the Bloomberg. So is this story. It's about one of, if not the most watched firm on Wall Street and what it's head of the company's massive Wall Street operations, Tim, has to say about the trading outlook. And we're talking about J.P. Morgan. Yeah.
1: Hannah Levitt, is finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from New York City. Among her most recent stories, J.P. Morgan bosses predict banks' long trading slump gone for good. Take us into it, Hannah. Um, give us some context, some background here. Uh, talk about the, the trading slump that that we've seen lately. Hey,
5: yeah. So thanks for having me on. Um, so after the financial crisis, the wallet, so that the total you know trading revenue for the industry uh, fell consistently. And the reasons for that were, there were a lot of reasons, but there were more stringent rules. There were the rise of electronic trading, low rates, uh, pressure from new entrants. And Outright disappearance of some of the, the products uh, post crisis. So here we had a downward trend for years, and then that all stopped in 2020 because it was a banner year for these firms in their trading desks. Um, so what the what the leaders at JP Morgan are saying is trading is a growing business, um, but you know set aside 2020's results because th- those were a one off, as some, as one of them described it to me uh, in terms of being so high. However, the the kind of dip is over. The worst of the worst is over in terms of that dip. So you'll see uh, growth in the coming years. Uh, Basically, the market structure changes and all that are in place. And now trading will grow with the economy.
0: So how are we supposed to read this? And it's one firm, but it's JP Morgan, Hannah.
5: Right, exactly. So they they pull in, um, you know, of the the five biggest uh, investment banks, they pulled in the most revenue uh, for trading last year. So it's, it's one firm. It's the biggest one um, mm-hmm. in this area. And, you know, I mean, I think that we're so, especially heading into earnings next week where the comparisons are projected to be, you know, not great from last year. Right. Jamie Dimon already said uh, he signaled a potential 38 percent decline from a year earlier in trading. And executives at Morgan Stanley and Citigroup also uh you know, tempered expectations there. So it's it's just a, uh, an interesting dynamic to remember both next week and in the quarters and years ahead.
1: So what do those years ahead look like? And what do those quarters ahead look like? Because 2020, I think for a lot of things, could be considered an anomaly.
5: Right, exactly. And, and, and in 2020, the trading desks really carried the team um, for these banks. And so it remains to be seen, you know, what What these comparisons look like. We'll see next week for second quarter and, of course, in third and fourth quarter and so on. We'll see then. But um, to the extent that these firms are projecting economic growth, with which Jamie Dimon wrote in his uh, annual shareholder letter this year that he is expecting a period of growth, um, the, the idea is that trading grows along with the economy.
0: And I love how you drilled down or J.P. Morgan did, whether it's you know and share with us in our audience uh, on YouTube and on Bloomberg radio about us specifically equity versus fixed income China in particular hmm
5: yeah that was definitely interesting so um, what I what uh, I reported was that equities are will expand the industry's wallet more than fixed income products um, and among the other predictions were the US will be uh, the biggest increase the trend is also positive in Europe and the wallet from China will also swell Um but it's unclear at this point what share of the additional business will go to foreign firms, but mm. they will see some at least.
1: What are the risks that the, the trading desks need to be worried about?
5: I mean, I think you can look back at the, you know, the kinds of changes that happened over the past 10 years and uh, just think about that and really the impact. You know, and there's always the computers are taking over the world and trading desks and all of that. So so there's, there are changes that we, we can't predict now that will likely happen or will certainly, you know.
1: You also write you about know. persistently low interest rates being a challenge over or, or in the last slump. And I'm wondering about persistently low interest rates moving forward now.
5: Yeah, well, and that's a good question. And that's something that we'll see uh, in, the, in the coming quarters as well. And, you know, to the extent that that changes over the next couple of years.
0: How worried are firms like JP Morgan and some of the other big banks, Hannah, on Wall Street when it comes to the startups? I mean, they all had to be, kind of in awe of the retail investor, the Reddit trader, and whether or not, we don't know what kind of legs it ultimately has, but it really does upend some of the way we trade. Yeah,
5: well, one of the things that I wrote in my story was that um, these leaders at JP Morgan were saying that companies like JP Morgan with the most scale and the ability to invest um, will have an advantage here. However, it, it also, going back to the Diamond's shareholder letter and you know other executives across Wall Street and across uh, financial services more broadly, have really sounded the alarm bell here on, on fintech, even big tech getting into financial services more and the need to step up
1: uh, competition. All
0: right, like we said, when it comes to J.P. Morgan, anything they say or do, we definitely take note of, and so do Bloomberg Terminal uh, readers. And we got earnings. And we got earnings up. coming up, right. And J.P. Morgan, really yep. uh, one of the big ones. Hey, Hannah, thanks so much. Hannah Levitt, she's finance reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from New York City.
4: I'm driving my car.
0: so just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. We've got stocks hitting an all-time high today, 10-year yields falling to a more than four-month low. So stocks and bonds moving in unison, kind of. Uh, we did have some volatility in terms of the equity trade. Let's get to it with John Trainer, Chief Investment Officer at People's United Advisors. They've got uh, $10 billion in assets under management, and John is on the phone in Bridgeport, Connecticut. John, good to have you here. How are you?
6: Uh, Very good, and and thanks for having me on on such a a wonderful day. It's great to see all the green.
0: Well, (laughs) but it was kind of all over the place a little bit. We've seen some ups and downs here, uh, but definitely different than what we saw yesterday. What is driving the trade fundamentally, in your view, right now?
6: You know, the best thing that I'm, I'm seeing in the market today is that it's being led by the materials and the industrials, that, you know, those are the stocks that are the reflation trade stocks. So even though we're seeing bond yields lower, uh, the, the, the stocks that we, we certainly want to see move higher are moving higher. So the composition of this rally is very good. The, you know, the absolute number is great, but the composition of today's rally is very encouraging.
1: OK, so give us the details there. I mean, what specifically is encouraging you about it?
6: Well, what we've seen in the past is that when, uh, when the technology stocks do well, sort of, the, sort of we, we're going back and forth between the growth trade and the reflation trade. And we definitely want to see the reflation trade win all right, you know, to oversimplify it. So the fact that we're seeing the, the reflation stocks trade well, that tells us that the Fed is really hitting the right uh, the, the right tone. They're they're concerned about inflation, but they're not going to do anything that's going to choke this off. So we're seeing you know the market do well, but we're seeing the stocks that really need a strong economy do well, which is very encouraging.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was reading a note, Peter Buchvar over at uh, Bleakley, uh, advisory sending a note out earlier and he said this is something we've seen you know since Alan Greenspan aggressively hiked rates back in 94 blew up the finances of Mexico and Orange County uh, again Peter book were writing this removing policy accommodation at a glacial pace has become institutionalized he said booms and busts of course followed but aggressiveness in easing and a snail's pace in tightening has become the norm and this tightening phase will be no different do you agree
6: you know, we do. We do. And, and, you know, we've all seen the op-eds and the, and the newspapers saying that the Fed is, is on dangerous ground and they're, you know, they're going to undo all the great work done by the Fed. I, I really have to give uh, Chairman Powell great credit. Uh, you know, he's he's he has he's unwinding uh, this incredible amount of stimulus in a very, very tactical, a very, very thoughtful way. And the market is is responding well. Uh, so I, I hats off to uh, to Chairman Powell.
1: Hats off. Um, hey, John, I'm wondering about the message that you think the bond market is sending. You heard Carol talk about the yield on the 10-year Treasury hitting the lowest in, in four months. Um, what is that telling you about how investors are thinking about growth? You
6: know. It's interesting because it's it's confusing the heck out of my uh, my fixed income team. I mean, it's right? back. Yeah, on on June sixteenth, right, the day of the uh, the Fed meeting, uh, the tenure was at a one fifty seven. Today we're at a one thirty one. I mean, it, it really is basically the bond market essentially saying they they believe that inflation is transitory. It's almost too good to be true. So we're we're actually a little defensive. Uh, we are uh, we're making sure we stay defensive on the bond side because it's it's almost a goldilocks scenario in the uh, in the bond market right now, and we we think it's probably a little bit overbought. So I mean, this it's a tremendous move. There's been a great rally. But We think it's overdone on the bond market.
1: When, so when you say you're being defensive in the bond tra- bond trade, what does that look like for you? well,
6: we're 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 keep, we're we're keeping our duration short. We're probably about eighty percent of the duration, meaning we're we're shorter in our maturities on our bond mm-hmm. portfolio, eighty percent duration of the uh, the ag right now. Uh, we're going to stay there. We're going to stay there.
0: What's the bond market telling us? Is it, Are they telling us, okay, folks, yep, you're going to get some off-the-charts earnings numbers this uh, for the second quarter. We know that because a year ago comparisons were easy and everything was falling apart and stopping. And yet, if we start to scrape away things on the other side of this, growth isn't going to be as strong as everybody thought.
6: Yeah, and- Exactly. What the bond market is telling you is it's almost Goldilocks that we're going to get the great earnings, uh, which we do think we're going to get, but we're not going to get you know uh, growth so strong that we're going to see rates move up and we're going to choke off this rally. Uh, the bond market is really telling us that, that, we, that we have hit it just perfectly.
0: All right. So let's talk about names that you like because it plays into, I think, your inflation trade. Among them is something like a whirlpool.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you take a look at the stocks that we're adding to our portfolios, they have one theme, that what we're looking for are those companies that are going to benefit from, from the economic growth. So we're looking at Whirlpool. If you look at a chart on that stock for the last five years, it really hasn't done anything. It certainly bounced off the lows of last year, but we think Whirlpool, with what we're seeing in housing, which we think is sustainable, um, this is a company that we want to own because it it's just playing on a lot of those, those reflation themes that we think are going to roll into next year
1: all right what about microsoft
6: you know, Microsoft is is our, you know, it's the one of the, you know, sort of the big five tech stocks. It's the one that uh, that we really think uh, has got the best business model going forward from wh- whether it's the cloud, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the uh, all the different uh, areas. I know they had a little setback with the Pentagon the other day, but we think mm-hmm. Microsoft is yeah. very, very well positioned. You If you own tech, you really want to make sure you own Microsoft. Well, I wanted to
1: ask you specifically about that. The Pentagon um, essentially pulling the Jedi contract yesterday that happened at about noon eastern time um and we still didn't see microsoft even close lower it it closed flat yesterday um so it didn't seem to come as a huge surprise to investors what was your reaction to that is that does that concern you at all that the cloud just isn't there for the company
6: well you know i mean if you if you're articles half of the articles are really very very politically oriented you know I don't know whether the awarding of that contract uh, to Microsoft had to do with uh, the Trump administration's problems with Amazon and,
1: and Washington Getty Post those. but
0: they're getting half the contract
1: yeah yeah so, I mean it's, so it's
0: not like they and maybe this is the government hedging its best or as government contractors like to do it's like playing them against them for the best deal
6: yeah, I mean, as, as a taxpayer, I, I think it's good. And, and again, this mm-hmm. has been so long in the tooth, uh, and things have changed. And it does make sense for the Pentagon to look at the contract again and say, "Hold on a second, let's redo this." We think Microsoft has got a great product, but again, I think the political the political uh, influence here uh, messed up the process. So I think I think a redo uh, is called for.
0: JP so. Morgan, you also like what's up with that?
6: You know, we like the banks. We look at the banks almost as call options on the economy. Hmm. And if the economy is doing well, you're going to see credit losses continue to remain low. You're going to hopefully see loan demand pick up at some point. Uh, So we, we like J.P. Morgan. It's well managed, but we like the financials just because we like the economy.
0: Even though with rates so low that in terms of the amount of money that they might make on some of the loans, it's not so great?
6: Uh, you know, uh, it, it, the net interest margin on all the banks is incredibly low. But, you know, we're hoping we see rates slowly move up as the economy improves. But, you know, again, we think J.P. Morgan and the bigger banks can really do well. They're, they've, got, they've got such diversified mm-hmm. revenue streams that we think they can do well here. Just
1: five seconds. What are you looking for when the big banks report earnings starting next week? Well, you got ten seconds. Ten seconds.
6: <laughs> What we're hoping for, what, you know we, know, we know credit costs are going to be good. What we're looking for is something that gives us positive news about loan demand. Loan demand is going to be the key. That's what we're looking for.
0: All right, going to leave it there. Always cover a lot of ground. John, thank you. John Trainer, Executive EP, Chief Investment Officer over at People's United Advisors, $10 billion in assets under management on the phone from Bridgeport, Connecticut.